Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Talking Horses with me, Ben Collier, and my esteemed old chum, Phil Brunetti. Morning, Phil. Afternoon, Phil, even. How are you? Afternoon. I'm very well. I'm very excited to be uh, doing this with you. This is the stuff of dreams, isn't it? So something that we've talked about for the duration, I'd say, or close to. Far too long. Interest in the sport, and we're finally getting on and doing it, aren't we? We are indeed. I mean, we uh, we should be dab hands at this because we've been sending each other voice notes for months on end about national hunt racing. So uh, this this should come very naturally to us. I hope. I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, cock ups along the way, but absolutely it's all part of the fun, isn't it? Oh, we all love a cock up. It makes it really exactly part of the fun, as you say. So, um, so shall we? Shall we uh, tell the listeners a little bit about what? to expect from this show as we Let's. as we move forward um i think you know we've we've talked a lot about what we wanted this to be and i think you know primarily it's really coming from a place of two people that have come to the sport from um having little or no interest in it more than sort of 10 years ago um uh which i think is something we'll come on to a lot as we 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 go through the the future episodes because we're sort of trying to tap into that um perhaps that audience and the fact that you know it's harder for people that aren't on the inside to necessarily always understand exactly what racing means when it uses certain terminology or when it talks about certain things mm-hmm. um and uh yeah i suppose you know from from going back to, to sort of our origins of interest you know it came from going to the king george in 2008 is that right is it really quarter yeah, stars so. third yeah so I think we've sort of witnessed something that kind of transcended the sport, didn't we? And if it wasn't for that, I always think if it wasn't for Corto, would we have ended up... You know? Maybe, or even if it wasn't for you living opposite Kempton Park. I mean, that's that's how it starts for me, is I'm just hanging on to your coattails, really. Um, <laughs> but since that point, we've very gradually built up, you know, a love with, with this sport of horse racing. Uh, and it's taken, like you say, 10 plus years to get to a point where we feel like we can chuck out a podcast and see what happens um but despite the fact that we've got this long-term relationship with the sport we still recognize that there's uh you know a need for the sport to potentially do a lot better in, in many ways as well in terms of how it promotes itself which is going to be one of the one of the hot topics we talk about today um so it's uh, so for me anyway it's uh, it's it should be a Kind of forum for discussing how the sport progresses, as well as looking at you know some of the brilliant, brilliant uh, contests that are coming up uh, in the rest of this national hunt season. So, yeah, very excited to get stuck into it. Fab. So, in order, in, in terms of sort of running order, then, so you know, at, at this stage, um, you know, it being a fledgling podcast, a lot can change, but the focus for episode one, um, it's going to be firstly on the weekend's racing. So we're recording this on a Tuesday. So we have the five-day decks, um, but um, obviously a couple of days before we know exactly what runs. But we'll try and decipher um, what might run in the, the various big races this weekend and just have a sort of holistic view of what we can look forward to. I will say this is a good week to be doing our first ever episode of Talking Horses because we've got some belting racing coming up this weekend. Uh, which isn't always the case for the middle of January. So um, that's worked out well. Um, then we will each week try and tackle, kind of as you alluded to there, Phil, um, one big issue 
um, from you know within the sport that warrants further investigation um, in a segment that we're calling Deep Ground. So this week we're going to be looking at kind of to, to the point we've already slightly raised is racing doing all it can to be attractive to its current audience. Um, racing talks a lot about a lot about the need to reach a new audience, but is it doing everything it can to be the best version of itself for those people that are already into the sport? Then we'll have a look at anti-post angles um, for the Cheltenham Festival. It's the middle of January. What racing podcast would we be if we didn't talk about the Cheltenham Festival? Uh, and then we'll finish with a segment we're calling Three Out, where we turn into the home straight and tackle three burning questions before we reach the winning post. And hopefully we can negotiate those uh, as nimbly and efficiently as Galapand Deschamps did on chasing debut at Leopardstown over Christmas. Ooh, so that's lovely, lovely reference. That is still one of the sparkling moments of this season for me, and I'm sure for many people. So we'll come on to him anyway. Um, so I suppose without further ado, should we have a look at this weekend's racing? Let's have a little look at what's going on. I mean, like you say, a great weekend ahead to be starting off something like this because there's one of the, I mean, there's no better place to start than the Clarence House Chase. Maybe you want to introduce what that's all about and what level we're talking about here. Absolutely. Well, I shall refer to my notes because I made some plentiful ones when uh, doing the prep for, for this show. Um, Clarence House is a race that I have in my head as synonymous with short price favourites and a relatively uncompetitive race and you're hopefully just watching a good horse go out and do what they should do. So I thought, well, let's see whether my memory serves me correctly. Um, and I think broadly it does. So this was won in 2021 by First Flow. Actually, last year was probably a bit of an odd one out in that it was quite an interesting uh, winner um, as First Flow um, sort of slogged through the mud, um, albeit in perhaps a, a weaker race than some over the last few years anyway. Deffy was super impressive in 2020 against probably slightly over the hill under so, who was coming yeah. back to try and win it. for. He was trying to win it for the fourth time. I, did That's you know, amazing, did, isn't it? Did you know that? No, the, I didn't know that. No, and he was, and that was his last race, wasn't it? That was his last race. Yeah, he was retired, he retired straight after. Yeah. So yeah, so the it, and then Altior was 2019, and then the three years prior to that, including in 2017 when it was held at Cheltenham again, which I had passed me oh, by. Oh wow, yeah. Um, we we're all won by Underso, but each time it was Underso coming over with you know a very very good chance of winning the race yeah and what we've got this year is willie sending over perhaps his number one two mile chaser which under so probably was back then too um but he's doing so uh in a race where he's not going to get his own way and we have perhaps the the new altior um who looks at this stage likely to take him on so I think this is probably the strongest renewal of the Clarence House that we've certainly seen for the last five years, if not if not longer. Yeah, it's it is incredible. I mean, we were expecting this clash between Shushkin and Enogamine in the Arkle last March. Uh, I forget the issue with Enogamine, but he had a minor issue. He was back then for Punchestown after and showed no signs of any sort of ill uh, ill health or anything. Um, so we missed out back in March. We were, I guess, expecting it to come round again for the champion chase in March. But luckily, six weeks ahead or two months ahead of the, the Cheltenham Festival, we've got it happening here at Ascot. Now, price-wise, 
uh, not to be confused with Thomas Eagle, Shushkin is a one to two, very, very short favourite. Uh, Energamine then at around 11 to four. You've got First Flow at sixes, Hitman at 14s, and Amula Gold, the rank outsider, albeit an Ascot specialist at 66s. So, if uh, if I may crack straight on with um, talking do. about how this how this race might pan out tactically, I think the useful thing with horse racing, or certainly in races of this size in terms of the number of runners, is that you can more or less um, predict pretty accurately how certainly they're going to they're going to tactically approach it each one, and they've all got slightly varying styles. So in Ergamine, he will want to dictate from the front. That's been his style. In all of his his chase victories, which uh, which uh, and he's won each of his five, um, each of his five chase wins have been you know, really confidently led from the front, uh, and you know he's done it with uh, uh, with kind of great distinction from the front. Then you've got Shishkin, First Flow, and Hitman, who will likely track in behind in Ergamin. Um Although First Flow, who won this last year uh, off a price of about fourteen to one, I think. Uh, he ended up taking up the running off of Politolog about halfway in. So those two were, were well clear um, about, about halfway. And then you'll have Amula Gold who will be hanging out the back somewhere, uh, which is his usual style, but he's probably not, to be honest, good enough to, to keep up with these for very long. So if that's the setup, then in my view, there's a chance that Energamine is going to have uh, the opportunity to, to have it his own way out front. There's, not, there's a possibility that that one of those tracking in behind won't really take him on until much later on, by which point he might be out of sight. Um, so Shishkin's going to have a, a Nico de Boinville on board. They're going to have a decision to make as to whether they uh, ride patiently as they as they normally do, or once Energamine gets going, and I'll predict that to happen in that kind of back straight with maybe a mile or less than a mile to go, are they going to go with him at that point? Or are they going to uh, wait for a moment of weakness to then pounce, which is you know, where Shishkin comes into his own in terms of his finishing speed and his engine. So that is the interesting cat and mouse uh, situation you've got going on. Mm. I guess, in my view, from a punting point of view, 11-4 to 4 for Energamine is too big. It's tempting, isn't it? We're talking about this it this really morning. It really is. I mean, 1-2 one, one to two is, is not tempting for Shishkin unless you... With I, can't, things and... I can't understand that disparity in price. I mean, it, it, that's a bigger disparity in price than there was in the anti-post market for the champion chase at the start of the week. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, uh, and I guess I guess the one doubt that might remain is that for whatever reason Willie decides against sending him over. But they both both trainers have been pretty bullish about about their their horses going. So uh, I'd be amazed if one of them backs down. You know, Nicky as as early as this as Monday this week was was really talking it up and uh, was very happy with Shishkin. So it's fascinating. It's maybe not a great betting renewal, uh, but if you really like an ergamine, then get on at, at eleven to four because I think he'll be sure to come me off. Yeah, they're both there. It'll be it'll be much more like maybe even money Shishkin two to one in ergamine something like that. I was thinking about this. I I assuming he goes, I could see an ergamine going off Fav. Yeah, I think he's held in such high regard. I mean, you know, you listen to people. To, I was listening to something with Barry Geraghty earlier in the, the season, and he just said that if he could ride anything at the moment, it would be from any yard anywhere. Really? It would be an yeah. Um Ruby said he sat on him and says this. You know, obviously never rode him competitively, but um, 
I think you could sort of tell there was a, a, a degree of sort of disappointment that he never got the chance to. So I think we, <laughs> I think we're dealing with something that could beat Shishkin, and everyone's yeah. going, "Wow, what's just happened?" And I think there'd be a lot of people there going, "Well, yeah, it's not a huge surprise." And no, the difference is when you no. look at the sort of Constitution Hills of this world, like nobody knew about that apart from people that knew the horse. We've got form to go on here. And I think yeah. the, the thing that's fascinating for me is this is the first race that Shishkin will have had a good pace to aim at since the Supreme um, yeah. what, two years ago. And the way he quickened, you know, even obviously was it two out uh, when he had uh, the faller in front of him. Um, yeah, yeah, he was able as well, to pick up again. I mean, that was incredibly impressive. Um, so you know, but this is—he hasn't had to do that in two years. So, given and you know, Shishkin is going to have to be he's going to have to jump. He's never had his jumping tested over fences. He's going to have mm. to jump well. We know Inergamin jumps well, um, and I would say, I think you were saying to me the other day that Inergamin's probably raced in stronger races in his career so far over fences than Shishkin has. Yeah. So, it seems, yeah, I, I think I'm totally with you. I, I mean, I, I've almost, it's not really my style to bet on something at 11 to 4, um, you know, in a sort of, but equally, in what's going to be a match, 11 to 4 seems very compelling given the, the, the evidence of the form. So, um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I look back at a few of Energamine's previous runs. Uh, the one that really stood out, or probably the most competitive one, was the, um, the one at the Dublin Racing Festival uh, last Feb where he was coming under pressure uh, at varying stages. You know, he led from the front, but he was never sort of eight, ten lengths clear at any point. Captain Guinness was on his tail quite a lot, and Captain Guinness ended up unseating just as he was making a challenge, so you don't really know how that was going to pan out. Mm. But still, as the uh, you know, as the other horses started to get a bit closer, he just, he just you know, went into another gear again. So mm. I just wonder if there's a chance that that pattern might emerge where... Maybe it's first flow that is the first one to go and have a go at him. Yeah, uh, and he'll just he'll just deal with him and batten away, and first flow will be pulled up mm. um, with with a quarter of a mile to go. I mean, the demolition job he did on Notebook in his his reappearance yeah. back in December was absolutely amazing, really, because Notebook's no mug. This is a dual Grade One winning um, chaser. And he, you know, they went toe to toe. They went properly at it, and Energamine just broke him basically. Yeah. Uh, and he ended up being pulled up, or he, or he, I think he finished forty-five lengths back or something. Yeah. Um, he was cut. And for, wasn't he? for a reappearance run, that was yeah, that was mightily impressive. So, yeah, yes. betting wise, I, I guess I'd, I'd favour Energamine obviously just because of the value. But you know, what contest? Yeah, absolutely. I said I'm not one to get involved at eleven to four. I should point out eleven to four is never a bad price to back a winner at. But okay. um, you know, at, at this stage in the week, you know, perhaps that sort of it wouldn't be a, a, a normally considered value. But the more we talk about this, the more I think it might be. Um, we're so talking yeah, talking ourselves into a bet, aren't we? Which uh, you know, as long as we're doing it sensibly, do. that's fine. Exactly. So excellent. That's going to be a cracker, and it's a decent card at Ascot as well. Um, so uh, then we've also got two other big um, meetings over the weekend. We've got the Peter Marsh uh, Day at, at Haydock on Saturday, um, and uh, which we're going to look at now. And then we've also got this amazing, um, what do they call it? Millions Weekend. Winter Million. Winter Million, that's it. 
um, at Lingfield, which occurs over three days from Friday to Sunday. Interestingly, Friday and Sunday are jumps, and Saturday is all weather, uh, including the winter oaks. Um, so, yeah, just I know relatively little about the whole thing, but we'll um, we'll come on to Lingfield in a second. But firstly, with the the Peter Marsh, so this is this is one of those races where it just turns into a slog every single time three miles plus in winter ground at haydock and there's just so many things that you know can can go wrong i, I always feel that if a horse isn't completely right for a race on soft ground at haydock then it gets shown up and they they run terribly um so but it's generally one that you'd probably look for something that's got some course experience on that type of ground yeah um you know, and, and it is well capable of having a classic slog. I noticed the forecast, as it is for down here, actually for for Ascot and, and Lingfield, is is pretty good for Haydock for the rest of this week. Right. The ground is soft at the moment, so it's unlikely to get much worse. But you know, I think given the the sort of temperatures, I think there'll still be plenty of moisture in the ground. Um, so I think it's still going to be a test. So. We've got a few. It's a fascinating um, set of entries we've got at this stage. So Royal Pagai is attempting to retain his crown off a seven-pound higher mark, which is certainly doable given actually what I thought was a pretty impressive reappearance run behind Aplitard that nothing was going to mm-hmm. get near um, back in the Betfair Chase. Um, he'll obviously and he won this. He won this easily last year, didn't he? Yeah, twenty lengths seven, plus. Yeah, so seven pounds. Should be a problem, you'd think. Should be. You just you want the ground to be soft enough for him, but I I wouldn't. Yeah. You know, the ground at this. If I was having an anti-post bet, the ground certainly wouldn't be be putting me off at this point. Um, Empire Steel is in there, lurking on a very good mark, having fallen four out last time. So obviously the handicapper can only put them up if they fall uh, after jumping the third last. Is that right? But. Th- uh... Three, sorry, yes, yeah. If they if they fall at the third last, they can go up for it. Yeah, I think that's right. So, um, yeah. so that was obviously why Shan Blue has been such a compelling proposition for future handicaps, given yeah. that he was going to win um, the uh, the Charlie Hall by an absolute street. But his mark hasn't changed because he mm-hmm. fell um, four out, I think. So, um, Empire Steel looked like he was going to win at Weatherby over Christmas. Um, so he he's definitely lurking off a mark of 140. Remastered and on card, renew rivalry from um, uh, from Haydock um, pre Christmas. Um, yeah, I thought that remastered off a he was carrying more or less top weight, I think, um, on heavy ground uh, or certainly testing ground. Whereas now um, he's carrying a much lower weight, and I just wonder whether that might be the difference um, because he, I think he he travelled and jumped brilliantly uh, and I think maybe it was just the weight on soft ground that got the better of him so he'd probably be my second choice but the one that I picked out for this that I thought would was was you know a bet at the the anti-post prices is Lord de Menil okay. uh, who has got absolutely I was looking at this in a bit more detail and he's got phenomenal Haydock form he's raced right. four times three wins in a second and um his last run was a courageous second place in the Roland Merrick at, at Weatherby over Christmas off top weight. He absolutely relishes the stamina test on soft ground and he loves Haydock. So I think he's available at eight to one um, in a couple of places as we're talking. So 
He's entered in the Fleur de Lis at Lingfield as well, but that's over two mile six. So, you know, given that the bulk of his form has been over further, this would surely be the, and his love for Haydock, this would surely be the target. So, yeah, I thought at this stage, Lord de Manil could be um, a nice bit of each way value, but it looks a good race. And obviously there's a few horses that Definitely. are double entered over the weekend. So I'd advise any anti-post bettors to just look carefully at those horses that have double entries and, um, just be sure that the, the horse you're planning to back is likely to go for for that race. Any yeah, other thoughts just, on just, the Peter Marsh? Yeah. Well, just more the approach to these big handicaps from a punting point of view when you've got clearly a grade one you know, Gold Cup horse in there like Royal Pagai, who obviously will be off top weight. Um, how would you, I guess it's a question to you really, do you worry so much about weight carrying when you're dealing with a horse that, on ratings alone, forget about what weight they're carrying, they are, you know, head and shoulders above the rest of the pack, uh, particularly with a bit of course form? Or just, yeah, just interesting to take, get your take on how you might factor that in. Whereas normally in most handicaps, you've got horses who are near enough in a kind of grade two at best to um, uh, to lower company. So, just yeah, the eye angle. I, I wouldn't be afraid of backing a horse carrying top weight in a handicap, but I think I'd generally be looking for something that's been proven at a higher level before I did that. Uh, when you're yeah. looking at these progressive handicappers, not many of them end up being graded level. So, you know, if something goes up significantly in the weights and is carrying top weight in a handicap, having had a, a win or a string of wins in uh, in lesser races or and or carrying lower weights, then... I'd want to see that they're up to that level before backing them again. Because I think it's really difficult, particularly on soft ground over a trip to lump 11 stone, 12 round, when you've got something that might be carrying yeah. more than a stone less. In the case of Royal Pagai, I wouldn't be put off um, for the reasons we've discussed. Yeah, no, agreed. Uh, and the only one, other one I'd throw in there as, uh, as more maybe one to watch is Lieutenant Rocco, who's, who's priced up in there at the moment. I'm not sure if he's got other options this weekend. Mm. Just have a quick look, actually, while that's happening. Uh, he does have, he does have an entry for the Fleur de Lis Chase, which we'll come on to at Linfield in a moment, and for a race at Doncaster next weekend. But um, he was well fancied for, and you'll know better than me, one of the big handicaps at Cheltenham. The Ultima. Before. Yes, I was on it before Ultima. he was taken out. Yeah, he was taken out. Clearly, a lot of issue, and we've not seen him uh, since, if memory serves. No, that's right. Um, so it'd just be interesting, given given his his back form as well, which is pretty strong, including yeah. most recently beating Nesta Park, who's come out this season and uh, performed really, really well, mm. um, and also running in behind you know a, a genuine Grade One horse in Fusel Raffles um, two Decembers ago, mm. December twenty twenty. He, he, you know, he's he's got potential to be one of those horses that maybe has the possibility to make that step up, but not seen him since February so um, yeah yeah, it's nearly a year out so just be interested to see if he does run how he runs not saying he's going to you know bolt up in this at 20 to 1 but um, just more 1 to watch available at 20 to 1 in places at the moment but as short as 12 oh, yeah. with, with some others so um, right. obviously not all book, bookmakers making him a, a rank outsider what do you know about Harriet Brown the new trainer having his first run for Harriet Brown well, assuming that he does run I need to know a bit more about what's happened there because he's moved trainers twice since February, um, since his last run. 
Um, yeah, he was he with to... Nick, Nick Mitchell, wasn't he, last season? Yeah, then there was a brief period where he was with Ralph Smith and uh, just in the last week it was confirmed that he's moved to Harriet Brown and I know very, very little about her apart from the fact she's had one runner in the last two weeks and it didn't win. So, <laughs> Not a lot of trainer form to go on then. That won't be a punch no. angle. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Well, definitely for not. briefly, I think I can shed a bit of light on that. So Nick Mitchell was the retained trainer by the chap, I forget his name, who sponsors the yard or owns the yard even. Um, and uh, they had a, a falling out last season, um, and the, the 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 guy with the money decided that Nick Mitchell wasn't following the way he wanted his horses trained, so he brought in Ralph Smith, um, and I think they've had um, a similar thing. Nick Mitchell had gone into, re- I think he'd gone into retirement, or he'd lost his, he, he'd closed the operation down, then he'd come back last season, um, right. uh, and so, you know, obviously since then, well, certainly the fallout was with Ralph Smith, whether the fallout was with Nick Mitchell or not, or whether there were other reasons why he stopped training right. again I don't know but yeah it's poor Lieutenant Rocker he's an amazing horse that um, maybe is getting caught up in a lot of uh, owner trainer politics but um, yeah. ho- hopefully he's we see him again much luck. yes indeed yeah nice so, so on to uh, the, the final race that we were going to have uh, a look at um, and that is um, this the, uh, the, the Sunday of this Lingfield Winter Millions meeting um, there's there's a few races that we could have covered here, but we've chosen to have a look at the Fleur de Lis Chase um, at three o'clock on Sunday. Um, the ground is currently heavy at Lingfield. As I said, the the forecast is decent, so you'd imagine that that might be more like soft come the weekend. Um, left-handed track, undulating track. It's not one that we normally think of when we come to look at the sorts of no, names that not. are entered in this one but um, Phil I know you've had a decent look at, at the Fleur de Lice so tell us what we should be looking out for um, Well the first thing to say about this Lingfield meeting in general is that this is a great shot in the arm for the sport in the UK in terms of you know, financial incentive for horses to come here so you've got quite a lot of representation from the other side of the Irish Sea making their way across in a variety of races which is um, which is fantastic, yeah. uh, and they're not just sending them across to, hopefully not just sending them across to get a mark and say, oh, by the way, we're not coming. Uh, yeah. I think they're genuinely here to win some big pots, and this is, I think, the biggest pot of the lot, which is is worth about seventy eight grand to the winner, yeah. um, which is you know about ten grand off what um, what horses will be winning at the W Racing Festival in a couple of weeks' time. So definitely up there in terms of prize money. Uh, in terms of this race, there's some real old favourites from the from the, the kind of staying chase brigade including a few we've already talked about in reference to that Haydock race mm. uh, but the one for me not very inspiring choice at the very top of the market is Fakir Dudery who's coming across for Joseph O'Brien from Ireland um, he stands out on ratings in age profile terms as well he's just turned seven uh, the kind of company he's been keeping over in Ireland in terms of who he's been running behind, the likes of Alaho, who you know rules the roost in terms of two and a half mile chases at, at the moment. Um, it, at five to two, best price, that feels like an absolute steal for punters. So I'll be all over that. I guess the only doubt is whether he actually definitely comes over. But um, I would suggest he'd have a much better chance of picking up 80 grand here than potentially 90 grand in a couple of weeks' time. Um, at Leopardstown in much hotter company. So 
Bakidugari is uh, absolutely the bet for me. Look, in behind him, you've got horse, great horses like Dashiell Drasher, um, Remastered and Lord de Manil both entered here as well, but I imagine they'll go to Haydock. Uh, Fanyan Deschavelle is another one who's interesting from mm. a progressive or progression point of view because a horse that's promised a lot but never quite finishes races, then won really, really well last time. So be interesting to see how he stacks up against a Fakir Duderi uh, should they come head to head. Um, and then other others others worth looking out for are Waiting Patiently again, who we're always patiently waiting to deliver an absolute glorious performance that uh, nice. results in all the hype um, being met. Um, but So he runs again, and I'll see this morning that the trainers confirm that. Um, so Good again, insight. another race... Yeah, another another race that's deep in quality, but um, there's one that absolutely stands out, and I'm surprised that he's not much shorter than five to two, which is not a massive price by any means. But ten pound on, thirty five pound back. You so do the maths, absolutely. Yeah. You take that. Um, no, I think I probably can't add too much to that, other than we know Joseph's not averse to sending horses over for races in uh, on this side of the Irish Sea, so. Um, I, I think your assessment of the, the the sort of the prize money available and the the fact that it will be harder for him to win a pot like that in any of the other potential upcoming engagements is is a very astute way of looking at it. I I, I was I was really taken with Dashiell Drasher's win over over hurdles last time. Um, he's a phenomenal horse. I I sort of I was thinking, well, he'd be you know he might even be using this to get ready for Ascot next month, but you know. Given the price money on offer, I wonder whether they don't care about Ascot now and whether they're more worried about trying to win here. So I think if there was going to be an alternative, um, he's a phenomenal horse on, on this type of ground. Um, I think he'll be bang there. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't be rushing to take on your Fakir do the refill. So, yeah. Um, Oh, I love I love the Drasher as well, and uh, he he came good for me last month when he just bossed it from the front, didn't he, and held on. Uh, yes, I see he's also entered in the in the two and a half mile hurdle, which happens about half an hour before this race, uh, which is another really interesting one. We're not going to talk about it, but um, due to the time we've got, but that's really interesting from an Irish sending over the likes of Darva Star. Saint Felician as well for Gordon Elliott in this. Um, so maybe the Drasher goes over there and. Um, and leaves uh, leaves the chase wide open for um, for Fakir to to mop up. We'll see to shoot into what should be an open goal if uh, your assessment is to be believed. Uh, we should point out uh, for the listeners' benefit that uh, Phil, you're a bit of a uh, Irish form student, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I mean it's only recent, I guess, from this season going forward. I just, I guess, we all witnessed the drubbing that. Um, uh, that Britain took not that I'm a big fan of the press recap and all this but it's quite clear that a lot of reflection was happening after the, the Cheltenham Festival as to what is going on in British racing why are we so far behind the Irish so while that question continues to be pondered and figured out the Irish are most likely to be you know um, winning winning the big pots of Cheltenham once again certainly in the in the graded races where I forget the stats on grade races alone at Cheltenham. It was even more harrowing, I think, mm. than the 23-5 um, for the overall. Uh, so since that point, I just thought, well, uh, I'm just going to go deep into the Irish stuff every every weekend. I think what's useful for me, not loads of time as a as a parent of two two little ones, 
the Irish racing is very concise and packaged up and there's a there's a kind of key meeting every Sunday uh, more or less and you can get a sense from um, from those meetings who's you know what the key horse is a lot of the form ties in as well which is really really helpful so you can mm. kind of get a, a ranking uh, for each chasing or, or hurdling division uh, as to who's the best out there and hopefully it will lead to some winners at Cheltenham which uh, certainly I've been short of uh, ever since I knew about the Cheltenham Festival <laughs> so I could, I could do with a few more winners so yeah, it's probably just a, a subconscious way of trying to bag a few more Cheltenham winners but yeah, yeah I've got, I've got some, me, some Irish stuff in the back pocket that means you're due doesn't it for, for, for the listeners and viewers surely you're, you're, yeah. a man, you're a man to, to follow well you've certainly been in good form the last few weeks so um, we can we can say that much. I know um, it's a shame our tipping challenge didn't start a few weeks ago. It starts <laughs> today. I'm sure it will continue. Um, <laughs> fab. So yeah, I think we can all agree it's a really mouth-watering weekend of racing um, ahead. So uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we've been able to um, to help you to to find a little bit of value um, at this early stage. So moving on to um, a segment that, as I mentioned at the top of the show we're calling deep ground where every week we try and tackle a topic that's going to take some getting through you're going to want something that's you know big stocky to really get through that that heavy energy sapping ground um and um so the first topic that we decided to tackle in episode one of talking horses is what we alluded to at the top of the show which is is racing doing all it can um, to create the best version of itself to the existing racing audience, um, you know, with the preface to this being that racing fans generally come to the sport from outside the sport, i.e., a day out, and they enjoy the punting, uh, even ownership. Sometimes people come into the sport through through ownership with relatively little uh, knowledge or interest in it up until that point. Uh, but when you want to find that more, and I know this is something that we've certainly experienced, Phil it can be hard to break through to that kind of inner sanctum. There are questions that aren't readily yeah. answered. If you want to try and find answers, it's really difficult to, and that has negative connotations for, for the sport and, and racing, you know, talks a lot about reaching a new audience, but I think we've both been discussing recently. What about that existing audience? You know, is, is racing doing everything it can to keep the people that are already interested in it? Um, so I know this is something that we've talked about at length, but sort of, you know, over to you for your kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I guess I came at this question from the point of view of how we, you know, our early years of our relationship with the sport. So casual race goers slowly building up the number of meetings we were going because we enjoyed the day out first and foremost. Um, we enjoyed the punting side of things. And if that went well, then great. If not, then no big deal. Um, but there's a big leap that then took us, I guess, years to, to, to bridge from going from that kind of casual race go to really understanding the sport and loving the sport for, for what it is purely as a sport. So I think it's quite hard at the moment for people to make that leap without putting in a lot of their own effort. Um, that's, that's the bit that's missing, to, missing for me is converting an existing audience, a more casual audience, into true sort of lovers or ambassadors even of the sport who can then spread the word to others and then that's how you kind of bring new audiences into into play potentially. I think that's probably from a racing 
authorities' point of view, that's probably an easier target than trying to just uh, you know attach yourself to the younger generation who just might not even be interested in the first place. So how? So I guess the question is, how do you then excite people like that about you know the actors or the characters that are in the sport, whether they're human or equine, and, and how do you inform people about just how brilliant they are as athletes? I think that is missing entirely. Um, mm. One good example, um, which has happened recently, is is trainer Dan Skelton's Saturday series, mm. where he yeah, it's really good. His he's used his Twitter, um, uh, you know, social media profiles to show the journey of a horse that's going to run on a Saturday, how they prepare for that race, and that's really really interesting insight for me as somebody who. Uh, it's relatively on the periphery of, of um, you know, the inner sanctum of racing as to how well they're looked after, mm. how brilliant these horses are in terms of the athleticism and, uh, you know, the sheer power of them. And, uh, and also you get a bit of a spotlight on the people behind the scenes within a yard, what they do. Um, you hear a bit from them as well. And you can you just straight away get this real emotional kind of engagement with, with what happens within the sport, and that for me breeds a lot of trust as a as a viewer. And you think, ah, oh, right, no, this sport is is a legitimate, you know, yeah. um, uh, leisure activity, or you know, something that I can really attach myself to because I can see the amount of effort that goes into it. I can see how brilliant the people and the horses are that are, that are in it. So that's one microscopic example of how the sport could really. You know, an avenue they could go down in a big way, uh, in a much more promotional way, to show what happens within the sport. And I really like that. I d- it's gone a little bit quiet in recent weeks. I've noticed. I don't know if uh, it's just too much effort or what, but um, that was brilliant. I thought. Well, I think you touched uh, on an interesting point there about horse welfare, and this is the the majority of what goes on within racing happens on small rural estates in the middle of nowhere which nobody has access to unless you are uh, either a journalist or working in that 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 yard and so when you see things like the panorama program that came out with uh, around the abattoirs that stuff goes on bbc what racing is doing to respond to it is critical and it doesn't necessarily need to be a direct response to that to say you know to, to, to sort of explain it away but it's to show the other side of it which is it's just naturally so well hidden isn't it yeah and that's that's the fortunate thing about you know, we've we've plugged on gamely and stayed with the sport, um, with with not much encouragement other than you know we've enjo- we've really enjoyed it and we've done more of it and thankfully we got some lucky, you know, lucky things like you know we got into a syndicate recently and we now have um, Rudy now Racing. Give them a plug. Rudy Racing, yeah, um, and we now you know a syndicate that owns multiple horses up at Manor House, uh, just outside of Chester. And the great thing about that experience is that we know firsthand that there's a lot of good stuff happening within the sport, but you just don't hear about it if you're not within that inner sanctum, like you say. And how we got into that was by pure luck, really. That your you know your current boss uh, has uh, set up Rudy Racing, and that was that again complete fluke really so if you're more of a fleeting observer you're just not going to get that experience and yeah this is where i guess it comes down to a kind of promotional marketing exercise um but one that truly engages people 
on on an emotional level, I suppose. Uh, and which, which shows I, off the good parts. I wanted to ask you about the emotional bit. That's a really interesting one. And you made this point the other day about how people engage with sport in general, whether it's a team or an individual. Yeah. Um, and that is such an obvious part of, of enjoyment of sport with football, rugby, cricket, golf. You know, so so many of the other sort of competitors, if you want, for that, that racing has in terms of its its audience. Um, so, you know, perhaps if you can sort of expand a bit more on that point you were making the other day around the difficulty that racing has and what you think it might be able to do to, to sort of yeah. counteract that. Yeah, so the stuff I mentioned before was more behind the scenes and, you know, the, the welfare for, for the animals. Um, I guess the, the, the sexier bit is uh, the actual, you know, people riding the horses, the jockeys. You know, they are incredible athletes, but I don't think... The majority of people would really believe that or know about that because mm. they don't see the it, it's not visually evident why they're brilliant and they all look fairly similar when they're doing their thing right is it fair to yeah. say yeah yeah exactly yeah but when you get a ruby walsh on the road to cheltenham talking you through what paul townend townend did on dice up dynamo last week yeah you're like oh wow this is brilliant mm. this is a somebody who's in control or, or working in tandem with this with this incredible animal mm. uh, to get the absolute best out of it, um, uh, and, and that's that's the kind of insight we're missing. So so there's that piece around not glamorising, but really promoting the the individuals that are the stars of the sport. I, I wouldn't say certainly from a UK based perspective, which is where we're coming from. I wouldn't say that's that's done well at all in the sport of racing. You know, mm. there's there's other sports to uh, that do that much better and much more naturally because you know scoring a thirty yard screamer is visually <laughs> an impressive thing, and doing a hands and heels ride round round <laughs> Cheltenham is is not something you can see uh, so obviously. So that's that's yeah. an inherent difficulty, but it's not mm. even attempted to be explained to people at all. Mm. So that's that's the piece, and then the horse. Same for the horses themselves. You know, these are incredible. When you see them up close, you just like you're yeah, blown away by they them. Are. Um, yeah, that's and something that doesn't that... come across so well on 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 TV and uh, and whatever else. So you need to make a point of that. I think when you're broadcasting and, and marketing this stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's you know obviously you can experience that if you're just a you know a a, a day to day race goer when you go to the track, and I think you know probably one of the challenges that racing's had over the last couple of years is that people haven't been able to do that as as readily. Um, but when you're there, I mean, we're very fortunate, as you say. You know, we used to go to Kempton a lot, and the the horses that we've seen over the years, and Kempton's amazing. You know, even on King George Day, yeah. when you stand right down the front, I mean, these horses are walking a yard away from yeah. you. And these are the sort of big, you know, the King George horses, and they're they're absolutely incredible. And then, as you say, when we've been down at Manor House, we've seen the, you know, the, the same thing. You get up close with them, and you realise how special they are. And it, you're right; it's very difficult difficult to convey that on on TV. The well, or certainly on on sort of race day coverage, anyway. But the thing I wanted to maybe bring up was to that exact point. What we've seen a lot in the last few years, particularly with the advent of, of the likes of Netflix and their own sort of content is sort of behind the scenes documentaries and certainly behind the scenes documentaries with sport and drive to survive has you know i mean i i've always sort of vaguely followed f1 you know but it is vague this season's been phenomenal i can't wait for next season's drive to survive i mean lucked out there and the cynics amongst you might suggest that that was why michael massey did what he did but um <laughs> that's fair or not uh, but obviously there is talk about racing having a similar thing and you know those 
similar things that do exist you know specific to racing like the being ap the ap mccoy film which is if you haven't seen it just go and buy the dvd or find it online whatever i think it's on 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 prime but um those things give an insight into it may still not necessarily tackle why a jockey on race day is doing something incredible but it certainly tackles what they have to go through to then be able to ride these these winners at cheltenham or indeed you know these these winners anywhere else in the country as they're doing the majority of the time that you know your average racing fan probably isn't watching so i think if if that sort of thing it's certainly if that series comes to fruition um yeah and can shine a light on you know a variety of different jockeys but other people within the sport owners trainers etc i think it makes it a lot easier for 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 the racing fan to get significantly more in, enjoyment out of the sport so i, I hope that 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 happens and so do i make that and you know you can you can have your opinions on on netflix and their involvement in sport and, and f1 in particular but one thing they are the best at is really again drawing on that emotional side of the individuals that are in this sport and that's the bit that gets me it's not watching the car i mean probably about 10 percent of um of drive to survive is actually about the race itself mm. or or the racing it's about the conversations that happen behind the scenes the kind of dedication that yep. the athletes are going through to get ready for for race day and uh and also i guess from a racing uh, an f1 point of view the amount of technical investment and knowledge that you need you know all of that stuff is is under the bonnet you know excuse mm. the pun um <laughs> if you're if you're if you're not into it so a horse racing equivalent for that I think would have a lot of benefits it would certainly do no harm yeah I completely agree um, and just sort of mindful of time there was one other thing I wanted to, to raise that we, we've talked about uh, and it's a really interesting point you made the other day actually around the um, the human interest element and the actual so the, the jockeys themselves and the difference between Ireland and the UK Ireland being a country where racing is sort of more closely woven into the sporting sort of fabric um, yeah. maybe there's a little bit less competition obviously you have extra sports over there Gaelic football hurling which are hugely popular yeah. but um, you know racing probably takes its place within the sort of top five sports whereas in the UK yeah, racing is well down the pecking order has a lot more sort of competition um, so I, th- I that was you know a very interesting point and you, you mentioned that people like Rachel Blackmore and Ruby Welsh are sort of regularly talked about as leading sports personalities in that country whereas AP McCoy is yeah. about the only one that would have had the same platform over here is, is that fair to say? Well I think so yeah and I think I guess if you weigh up what's hitting the headlines on a, on a mainstream national basis from the sport racing it's all negative that's that's what's making news at the moment in terms of what's you know what's on panorama for example uh which you know i think was a poor piece of piece of television but the majority of the people who watched it will swallow that hole because there's no understanding of the other stuff so so there's that or there's the briny frost robbie dunn uh case as well which which hit the back pages Mm. whereas the glory and the the dedication and the athleticism and all the uh, you know the the kind of prestige associated with, with being in racing that's that's in you know you've got to go several pages into that mm. uh, back part of the, the sports section to, to get it in the UK at least and that's that's not a problem for the media to solve as such I think that's one where you yeah. you, you you know invest and invest time money into the into the media as an authority for the sport to, 
to, to raise its profile. So that's the problem at the moment. But there are you know, there are blueprints, I think, to get out of that and certainly be more progressive in how it does that, such as the Netflix thing, is going yep. to be one of the keys to doing that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think it creates a sort of a level playing field for racing to compete on. When you have that... Dog's going in the background, he agrees. Um, when, when you have that sort of... Uh, uh, the, the human interest thing you know you, you th- therefore racing becomes it, it, just the nuance of the sport that's different but the actual fundamentals of people coping with the day-to-days of what they do and how they do it and how they have success doing it you know it, yeah. is, a, is a consistent theme and and one that that has clearly worked to um the benefit of other sports so and anybody uh, anybody watching that can relate to that you know yeah. can see the time people are putting in and you think wow i've got so much more respect for for this person and actually as a consequence, the whole sport because I see what's going on. Now. Yeah, you know that's what happened to me when I watched that AP film. I thought, on the on the surface, you think AP is quite you know tricky sort of grumpy character who wins a lot of horse races and that's it. But then when you see what what he's going through and actually there's a lot of humour and um, a lot more sort of depth to his character in that film that comes through. That's that makes yeah. all the difference. And I would probably challenge that uh, as to how mainstream that film got. I think. It's mm. probably again for people who who know who guys and are willing to go out and buy the DVD or rent it or whatever. Yeah. Um, so maybe still not that widely available. Whereas the Netflix thing, I just think that's that's an interesting, really interesting one. Yeah. So I'm yeah. desperate for that to come to life. That would be it. Would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, look, there's a load more that we could talk about here, but uh, I think in the interest of uh, of time. Um, we'll cut it there, but some yeah, some really interesting thoughts, and I, I I really do think that racing needs to think less about a new audience and uh, and more about its existing audience. You know, I used cricket as an example too the other day. Cricket has shot itself in the foot as far as I'm concerned, bringing out so many different formats. You just don't know what the end goal is anymore. It's so hard to associate with players and teams um, and formats because there's so many of them. Um, yeah. you know, so I think you know racing needs to focus less on things like racing leagues and all these sorts of new exciting ideas to try and attract a new audience, and focus on you know its uh, you know its its own database for want of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think those. Um, I think last word those those I've done that already. Um, but uh, they're running before they can walk in a sense with those new ideas around new audiences. You know, mm. get convert more people who are casually interested first yeah agreed totally agreed um fab thanks mate that was uh right well, ho- hopefully that raised some uh, some interesting points and um hopefully there'll be uh the, you know this is the sort of thing when this goes up on the youtube channel um that we would you know relish um you know comment and your your thoughts um and even if there are other questions that you want us to tackle in, in future episodes so on to our penultimate feature for this episode which is the anti-post angle as i said at the top it wouldn't be a racing podcast in the middle of january if we didn't talk about the looming specter of the cheltenham festival like it or loathe it i think most people like it but loathe it is in reference to the negative press it gets (laughs) around five days and whether it is the be all and end all of the national hunt season um but um what i wanted to ask fairly quickly of you phil and i will chime in with mine too um, yes. your most your most likely winner at the 2022 Cheltenham Festival and this might be the same might be different the horse that you think is best value currently uh, two different horses the, the most likely for me is Run Wild Fred in the National Hunt Chase and we're going to come back to the National Hunt Chase so I won't go any further on that one 
best value at the moment. There was a few candidates here, but one I'll plump for is Queensbrook in the Mayor's Hurdle. She's 16 to 1 at the moment in most places. Third in the champion bumper uh, at Cheltenham back in 2019. Long layoff after that, after a switch to novice hurdling. Well, she did okay, and I think she was third behind Concertista in a, a novice hurdle event, which she then uh, had a long layoff after. She followed up that long layoff with a second uh, place to Luna Power. Um, in I think October of last year, who has since run second to a couple of really good geldings, including Follow Games for Gordon Elliott. Uh, and then since that win, um, Queensbrook beat CL Ganesh, who has since mm. won twice. Uh, so that's a taking piece of form. Now it's a very open market. This mayor's hurdle, and you've got um, you know names who have won at Cheltenham, like Tell Me Something Girl, who's uh, I think currently favourite uh, at about four or five to one, so it's it's an open contest I'd say. But Queensbrook at sixteens has gone under the radar, I would say. Yeah, I totally agree. And I would add that Gordon said at the start of this season in the Racing Post Stable Tour that, uh, that that she would have a good chance in a race like this, and obviously won it won this race last year with Black Tears. So yeah, I think that's a good he shout. He might know. Yeah, he might know a thing or two. Yeah, uh, Gordon Elliott knows a thing or two about. Winners at Cheltenham, don't say. <laughs> um, tell so me, from, tell me yours. Uh, yes, mine. So, I mean, there's a. Few, I don't want to be boring. I don't want to say honeysuckle because that's probably the first <laughs> name that pops into everyone's head. However, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have two. I'm going to take the Gavin Lynch and up in the ante approach. And I'm going to have two. I think y- you have to say that uh, the honeysuckle is is. Okay, uh, I've probably not read the question as as um uh what's the word as sort of straightforward as you have there, but honeysuckle will absolutely be. A very likely winner. Oh, I just can't. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I will say at this stage, I've backed Adagio each way at a nice big price after his second in the Greatwood. I could totally see him filling a place, but yeah, I don't think he's going to be beating Honeysuckle. Yeah. Um, okay. uh, but the other I'd go for would probably be Bob Ollinger. Um, so two pretty boring ones, but you know, but I think Bob is. We were we were talking about this over the weekend. That that performance on Sunday, you'll see horses win more impressively, maybe, but. I think he beat a good horse in Capadano that was ready to, to mm. give his best that day. And that's probably the biggest test he's had in a while. Certainly bigger than the one he had at the festival last year, which you, where he dealt with them in, in no uncertain terms. Um, he showed he can jump. Um, mm. To be honest, I don't think he needs to be the stickiest jumper in the world. With that engine and that turn of foot, I think he can jump okay and still win at Cheltenham. Uh, I think that will now um, push other horses away. Um, uh, that that might have gone for that if he'd if he'd won by yeah. a whisker or even you know come second. Um, so Bob Ollinger for me looks um, definitely one for the, the multiples. Um, yeah, I think what's um, what's amazing about him is that when you think he's in a little bit of trouble, within a few seconds, the worries are gone and he's you know he's on terms and looking very very comfortable. And then uh, you know as he did against Capitano, I think he finished seven or eight lengths clear in the end. Yeah. Whereas turning in, you thought, oh, we're in for a battle here, but yeah, he, he just finished it very quickly. It's fascinating to think where he might go next year. I mean, on one hand, you think, well, he's yeah. going to go for a Gold Cup. I, I could see him winning a champion chase. That that speed, I know they thought about champion yeah. hurdle for him this year, so um, I wouldn't be surprised if they, they came back in trip for um, for next season. And, and what a mouth-watering mm. prospect that would be if you had Bob Ollinger, Shishkin oh. and, and Ergamine in the same race. 
But these are the things that we dream of that rarely actually come to fruition. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, hold our horses, no pun intended, on that one. And then most likely, or, or best current value, this is a tricky one, but I came down on Dysart Dynamo for the Ballymore on this one. Oh, okay. Because I think that the Supreme is so competitive. I mm. mean, John Bond, Constitution Hill, Sir Gerhard, now Dysart Dynamo, all around between sort of three and five to one. Uh, all would have really strong claims for winning a Supreme in a normal year. Um, the, and the Ballymore, um, relatively, is wide open. I think if you look at the way Dysart Dynamo went about his business the other day, he's clearly got a bit of speed, but good jumper and you know one over 2-2 two, two on his debut, two miles and the Moscow Flyer at the weekend. But I think this horse is clearly going to be able to get round uh, two mile five at Cheltenham. And I think if he goes there, he wins. Um, so I would, I would think that... I would be. We're going to come on to this in a sec. I'd be surprised if Constitution Hill um, went here. I think that Nicky will send them both, given different ownership to the Supreme. Um, mm. I think we know, barring anything unforeseen. I know it's Willie Mullins, but we know Sir Gerhard is likely to go to the Supreme as well. I don't mm. see why a, a shrewd trainer like Willie Mullins would send two Grade One, likely Grade One winning um, novice hurdlers yeah. to the same race. So I think he's around about five to one, something like that, for the Ballymore. Uh, if he goes there, he'd be he'd be close to even money favourite. I would have thought. Yeah, that's a good shout, especially knowing Willie's approach to Cheltenham. He just wants winners. So Benny Didier, many you know, several times was talked up as a potential champion hurdle horse and all the rest of it. She just kept going back to the, to the mayor's hurdle, and there were you know mayors previous to that who were who were much more well revered than Benny Didier, who did the same. Mm. Um, Vega won four mayor's hurdles, did she? She did, yep. You know, there was a horse that could easily have probably stepped up into, uh, you know, into, um, cup, into, uh, into bigger races or bigger prize spots, but he just wants to win the race that they are most likely to win. So yeah. that Ballymore feels open. Yes, you've got some, you know, you've got Journey with Me for Henry Bromhead who has has gone down that same Bologna route, I suppose, which is sort of uh, the thing that's most in his corner so far, uh, apart from beating a maybe below par kill crook. But that feels like uh, if you if you send dice up Dynamo here, yeah, I think that's pretty solid. What was uh, the value again? What five was the price? To, five to one. Um, so him and him and Sagerhard are top of the market. And the other line of thought there was that if you look at the line through, I know Gringo Dobrell was going back to two miles, having run over two five in the Chalo, um, uh one by Stage Star, but Gringo Dobrell was was beaten relatively comfortably by Stage Star. He was obliterated by Dysart Dynamo, yeah, yeah. so you can certainly rule out. You know, if Stage Star is the best of the British, then a British horse ain't winning the Ballymore this year. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, nice. So there we go. Great, so that is our um, Cheltenham Festival uh, anti-post. Um, uh, well, certainly our most likely winner and best value. Do let us know your thoughts. Uh, you might think that is a load of complete bollocks. If so, we'd love to know why. Um, but uh, the other thing that we wanted to tackle um, with an eye on Cheltenham, or more than an eye on, on Cheltenham, um, is um, the National Hunt Chase. Um because this is a race that obviously you've alluded to there in your with your most likely winner, Run Wild Fred Phil, um, which I yeah. um, I'm, I'm 
very much floating around as well. I've not had a bet in this race yet, but uh, we've looked at it a lot in the last few days and I'm starting to think it might be time. Um, but um, the qualification for this race, and again, this ties in with sort of what this show is all about, sort of putting a spotlight on some things that are maybe not made as clear as they should be, is a is a really interesting way of finding value because uh, there's a lot of horses towards the head of the betting that are not qualified for this race um and so you can quite easily look at the betting and think oh god this is wide open um but then actually when you go into it in a bit more detail it's not i'm gonna get my ipad out here because i've got some notes on this that i wanted to yeah reference but um essentially well the the qualification criteria is that horses have to have run over and they updated this in 2019 um when they changed the, the distance mm. of the race after that 2019 race um with so many fallers and fatalities um so along with bringing it back a couple of furlongs um you've got to you've got to run in at least two chases in your career and critically you have to have finished in the top four in a chase over two miles seven and a half furlongs or further in that current season now when we looked a little bit further into the horses that are towards the head of the betting um the other day we noticed that um, there's quite a few horses in there that are actually not yet qualified and given the late hour um, it's you know running horses between now and the Cheltenham Festival to get them qualified um, is that going to be a hindrance to their chances so we look back at mm. the history of this race um, and we look back at the five most recent victors Galvin, Ravenhill, Lebroy, Rathrinden and Tiger Roll and Galvin, Ravenhill, Tiger Roll, they all had their last run before the National Hunt Chase uh, in October or November. And Lebroy and Rathvinden um, were the outliers there. Lebroy had his last run on the 19th of Jan. Rathvinden was sort of the real outlier. He ran at the Dublin Racing Festival, but he was running in a, a grade one chase. I think he fell in that. So they obviously thought that horse was... was pretty good so you and he was yeah. well fancier on the day at, at Cheltenham so what that tells us is that we're at the 18th of Jan now so if the if Lebroy's last race was tomorrow in the season that he won um you can say with some certainty that you know the market has kind of taken shape by this point and those that are gonna mm -hmm. be the likely willers will have will have run already given all of that we've got a bit of a shortlist um you can take out Statler, still needs to qualify. Um, you can take out Capadano, Ombaton, the boss is Oscar, and Jungle Boogie that all need to qualify. Ombaton is the one that needs a second chase run. Actually, so does Jungle Boogie, but all of them need to have uh, secured a top four finish in a, a race of the appropriate distance or above. And they're obviously all, you know, towards the top of the market and that leaves you with Run Wild Fred Vanillier Fury Road 3 under 3 5 on the ropes and Brayside there are more further down but you're getting into the big prices so given Phil that you've told us that your most likely winner <laughs> is uh, of the Cheltenham Festival of the whole week is Run Wild Fred perhaps you could tell us given that he meets the necessary criteria why you like him so much yeah, look, you've, you've highlighted a lot of it. Um, I'm a pretty safe punter, so uh, particularly from an anti-post point of view, I don't like taking chances. You've described like me this. as reckless before. Yeah, exactly. We're, this is why we work so well together, We're so complimentary. Um, 
but this is one that I'm willing to take a chance on because I don't think there's unless something goes wrong between now and March obviously with the horse uh, which can happen he's going to go to this race he's not racing anywhere else he is entered um, at the Thiestes next week at Gorham Park and at the Dublin Race Festival but clear from trainer comments that they're, they're just entries just to have an option um, he's a second season novice chaser already so plenty of experience and it's not like he ran badly in his first season novice chasing he just didn't win he was second in an Irish Grand National so for me that fills me with confidence because he's already run that extended trip of, of three mile I think that's run over three mile five mm-hmm. which is an extra furlong um, and he's done that consistently this season very very good jumper very clean apart from one fence at the Neville Neville Hotel's novice chase uh, where he was ultimately beaten by Fury Road we'll come to a sec mm. um, but apart from apart from that very very reliable um, and like you said you know he's already qualified and in terms of what else has already qualified in that list of yours I think you can the vibes are certainly with Fury Road being from the same uh, ownership is that that horse will go elsewhere probably for the brand advisory officers chase over three miles they think a lot um, of him I know that much yeah exactly and I think they think more of him than Run Wild Fred mm-hmm. in terms of graded company mm-hmm. so um, for me that is the safest anti-post pick I can find currently and probably have done in recent years and he's four five to one still which yeah. come the day he won't be he will be twos at best I think so, there's a reasonable chance that that price, it, it, at least in part, exists because bookmakers uh, maybe haven't quite looked into it. They've done the rules. No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And there are, look, there are there are still avenues for horses to qualify. So the Thiestes, which I just mentioned, is is one that is run over three mile one, I think. So you've got mm. Brayside in there and Cocoa Beach and you know horses that um, love a uh, you know love a really really long trip. So that will be one opportunity for horses to qualify. Um, there's others near the time, but as you said, trends, and I'm not big on the trends, but in this case where freshness is key, mm. um, that would suggest that they've missed their chance already and they're going to be lacking the freshness that Run Wild Fred's going to have since he last run in whenever it was, December the 28th, I think. Yeah, I think there's so, something to be said for just get getting, you know, getting a good one, getting it ready and then putting it away. And uh, yeah. Gordon does that as well but, as anyone, doesn't he? Yeah, and I think Galvin's probably more the template now than maybe Tiger Roll a few years ago with the with the rule change as well. This mm. race has probably become a much more attractive race to send horses, whereas in the past it probably represented a risk. If you've got mm. a good horse, I'm not going to go for the four miler because that might that might really leave a mark on them and we might not get the best out of them. Yeah. And it's not a huge prize pot probably either compared to what they could get. Yeah. Whereas Galvin's gone there and it's almost a prep run for where he's going to go go off second favourite or maybe even favourite for the Gold Cup this year. Yeah. So it's changed complexion as a uh, as a race from a trainer or a placement point of view for your mm. horses. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, I just think there's a lot stacking up for Ron Wildfred and that's why I'd be pretty confident right now. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's very hard to argue with that. I mean, he's, he's certainly one that I've, I've come back to again and again I think at one stage this season it might have been that he was going for the big handicaps and I think he's maybe stepped up a little bit further than they thought and I think they've got another one like that in Galvin who I back for the Grand National at the start of the season. He will not be running in a Grand <laughs> National this year. Um, he will uh, one year. Was it, was, it, was it for this particular year or just any time Grand National win? 
I think it, oh, I wish it was the latter. To be honest with you, <laughs> I mean, you know, now he's at that level, he'd have to fall a long way to even have a workable mark in a Grand National. By which point, he'd probably yeah, be four, fourteen. So, um, okay. so yeah, I mean. I think there's little more to be said there. The only other one that I thought was very interesting was Brayside, um, <laughs> primarily because he is now three pounds higher. Um, so Gordon entered him um, over here at Kempton last week, um, evidently just to get a few of his handicap mark. So he's one four eight, so he wouldn't get into a Kim Muir. Um, he's for the same owners as uh, Mount Ida, who obviously famously won it from trading at 999 yeah. to one in running uh, last year. So um, I think he, you know, that was a very, very taking, eye-catching finish at Leopardstown in the Paddy Power of a Christmas behind schoolboy hours, carrying more weight than the than those ahead of him, I think, certainly than the, than the winner, and never nearer than at the finish. So I would be interested if that horse ran here, and I'd almost be... Um, there was talk about him getting his mark reassessed. I'm not sure how you go about that. You don't hear the last time mm. I heard that was Dame de Company, um, and she ended up winning the Coral Cup after being dropped two pounds from the mark that she'd been given. Right. So, if they go down that road, then that tells you something, and you get all over Brayside for the Kim Muir. But um, yeah. I, yeah, so he was the only other one. But yeah, I think Run Wild Fred is. Um, and to be honest with you, if you are a safe punter like our friend Phil here, you can have him each way, can't you? And you'd probably be you absolutely fine. And you'd feel fine about it. You would, honestly, it's fine. It's fine, guys. <laughs> Just do it. It's better than, better than a straight loser. Um, absolutely. Brilliant. Excellent. So thank you for your thoughts on that one, mate. That's um, Hopefully that's created a bit of clarity for those of you that were still looking at that race um, with a bit of fuzziness. Um, and then uh, the final feature of um, Talking Horses each week is going to be a segment that we're calling Three Out. Um, and as I mentioned at the top, hopefully we'll be able to get through these questions quickly and nimbly and efficiently. Um, and so we'll crack straight on with those. The first is Constitution Hill and John Bon are trained by Nicky Henderson. So Gerhard and Dysart Dynamo trained by Willie Mullins. They, between them, represent the top four in the betting for the Supreme and are pretty prominent in the betting bar John Bond, I think, for the Ballymore. My question to you is, will there be split up, or will we have the greatest supreme in living memory? I wish it was the latter. I really did. Um, before hearing your argument just now about Dysart Dynamo going, going potentially for the Ballymore, which, knowing a bit about how Willie Mullins likes to approach Cheltenham, is is quite likely to happen, I would suggest. So you might have three of those four going up against each other, which would still represent a great spectacle. And there's others not mentioned who would who would play a part in what would be a pretty deep supreme, I would suggest. That's probably going to produce a lot of grade one winners going forward. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I think we're going to get three out of four instead of four out of four. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it might not be Dice Dynamo. The only other one it could be is, um, is Constitution Hill. Um because I think we're into unprecedented territory with Henderson having two hurdlers of this ilk. I think people talk about Altior and Bouvardere running in the same Supreme. I don't think they thought Bouvardere was as good as Altior, um, mm. nor has that been sort of borne out in, in time. I think they have two here that are seriously good horses. So, you know, they're different ownership, but I can see why you might not run them together. But, um, but yeah, I think three out of four is, is uh, and it probably will be the three that you've mentioned. 
Um, Gold Cup versus Brown Advisory. We've got some great staying chasers going on at the moment um, and some competitive anti-post markets. What is the stronger race? The three mile two in open company or the staying chase grade one for novice chasers at the festival? Two ways of looking at this. One is where is the best horse across the two races? And for me, it's in the brand advisory novice chase and the horse is Galapan de Chong. And this is can seem ridiculous because he's only been over fences in public once, but my God, was that good. Um, scary and and what he's going up against isn't bad either in Brave Man's Game I can't believe we're saying that it's not Brave Man's Game yeah I mean given what we've seen from him so far this year the fact that he could be second best in that race and and maybe he's still in a way slightly under the radar and and a value punt I don't know what you can get him I imagine he's four or five to one or something um, I'll tell you uh, so I'd say that's where the best horse is he's fours okay um the deeper race and the more competitive one is the Gold Cup. Uh, I love the fact, and this is not just because I backed him at Christmas, I love the fact that Galvin's come in and kind of upset the apple cart and it seemed very clear that Appletard was the lead staying chaser and was, you know, eschewing for the Gold Cup and would go off even money. But that has put a cat amongst the pigeons um, a little bit. So I, I love that and I think there's still horses that can come back to Cheltenham and do well you know Manila Indo's not been great on on his two uh, appearances this season but saves his best for Cheltenham and could easily be a player again and it's 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 just just a great race so I'd say that's the better race but the best horse is in the novices chase and for that reason I think a Hoysenor is going to be sent to the Gold Cup (laughs) therefore at 66 to 1 represents tremendous value (laughs) um on to the final question then. So, oh, I this could be a very difficult question if we hadn't already thought about the answer. Most impressive display that you've mm-hmm. seen so far this season? Again, not because I backed it at Christmas and you half oh, yeah. pooed it on WhatsApp, but <laughs> I really enjoyed Galvin's win as a horse and jockey combination performance. Um different tactics on, on Galvin versus his previous performances, rode much closer to the front. Um, at one point, looked like what inevitably was going to happen was that Aplutide was going to um, you know, track and, and, and pick up the pieces, which which looked to be the case. This thing that Rachel Blackmore does with with her horses when she does that is kind of crossover um, a little bit in a, in a, I'm sure, a very legitimate way. Um, but it forced Davy to really get Galvin going, and the way he sort of came up um, that home straight was just very exciting. Uh, I'm sure there were probably more impressive individual performances. We've mentioned Galapagos Champ, and maybe that's yours, but just enjoyed that race. Well, and you know, given that you mentioned at the top that you've got two young children, obviously, you know, your celebrations have to be more considered these days. Out of ten, uh, what sort of <laughs> what sort of level were we talking when Galvin watching- got up? I was watching that in in a toilet actually, um, just getting a bit of me time. Uh, so so I wish so, I hadn't yeah, asked. I'll, wish I hadn't asked. Yeah, so I went full full volume on that one. Excellent, good stuff. Maybe that I might be in to ask something else. Um, so <laughs> um, brilliant. Yeah, no, I I would agree. That was I thought he was cooked, and that was uh, yeah. I had to eat my words after that, uh, which I did, uh, and I'm I'm always happy to do. Um, Humble pie was had. Indeed, it was, and uh, it tasted awful. Um, my <laughs> most impressive. So, 
Uh, yeah, Galapin Deschamps is... I'm not going to say that, though. I'm going to say Brave Man's Game in the um, Corto Star Novices chase at Kempton on Boxing Day. And Galapin was amazing because I so often at Leopardstown, it seems to me that that finishing straight is up, is uphill. And I don't think the TV necessarily shows it particularly. No, it doesn't. Mm. And therefore, I think that explains why horses often look to finish quite slowly, um, whether it's two miles or three miles plus. Galapin Deschamps finished like Constitution Hill finished up the hill at Sandown um, yeah. at the beginning of December. He was moving like a flat horse. It was yeah. something pretty special. So you could quite easily make the case for that. Brave Man's game had question marks going into that Corso star. He was facing a very exciting horse and a Hoy Senor. And Hoy Senor actually, right at the end, went off favourite. And I think the way that they rode a Hoy Senor to try and put Brave Man's game out of his comfort zone um, made that even more of a test. It's not that he won, it's the way he won. The way he just moved up. It was such such a good ride by Harry Cobden. I think this my answer here is based on the ride just as much as the horse. But we haven't seen Brave Man's game have to jump under pressure and have to jump with a horse alongside him like that yet. And he won that race with his jumping over the last two or three fences of a of a you know a three mile chase where you know a decent pace was set by a horse that probably will stay further and I think that they knew that was how they were going to beat Brave Man's game if they had a chance to on a track that probably played to Brave Man's game strengths more than Ahoy Senor's admittedly I was there I hadn't backed him but it was just one of those moments where you find yourself cheering him like you have backed him it was you know I've, I've I but I have backed him <laughs> for the um, you had already I had already backed. I backed him straight after the festival last year. So angry to have lost to Bob Bollinger in the <laughs> in the Ballymore that I thought, right, we'll have him for the festival. You know, the, the the Brown advisory, knowing that Nichols has always compared him with Denman, uh, and then bloody Galapin de Champ comes out. But, well, that was uh, before we knew anything about Galapin de Champ, wasn't it? When did he win at Cheltenham? The it was on the uh, the Friday and the uh, Martin. Point, yeah. So. Oh, of course it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there he we didn't go. even exist in my in our minds. But yeah, he was. Um, Brayman's game was foot perfect in that. In fact, he has been all season, but that was confident. And the confident ride as well, just confident just waiting for me. And yeah, then he made it look very easy. Thing but of absolute, absolute beauty. Um, so good stuff. So Galvin and Braveman's game. There we go. So a fun and information packed first episode of Talking Horses. <laughs> I think we've very much enjoyed it. Would you say, Phil? Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it again, shall we? absolutely yeah I think we'll make, we'll make this a thing um, so uh, yeah do leave your comments uh, below um, share your thoughts obviously we want to make this as good as it can possibly be um, and uh, thank you very much for watching thank you very much for listening we'll see you again next time <laughs>